If you want to take your Bibles out and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, I'm going to be uh, going into chapter 6. Amen. In children's church, we teach our children some very, very simple things, but they're things that's profound. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings judgment. Yeah. Yep. So we want to make sure that we're obedient children. Eli, he learned that. He's learning that, praise God, and so is his sisters. And our, our, our young parents are doing such a great job raising these little ones here, and I'm really, really, really proud of them. <clears throat> um, all right, if you found your place in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, it says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching... They are conceited, and they understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy and strife and malicious talk, evil suspicions, and a constant friction between people of corrupt minds who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Verse 6 says, but godliness with contentment. Everybody say that with me. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, and it didn't say all people, but some people, they're eager for money. They've wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness Godliness, faith, love, endurance. The King James Version says patience and gentleness. Verse 12 says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you, were ma- when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I charge you, keep this commandment without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Verse 17 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Say that with me. Put your hope in God. Say it again. Put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our 
enjoyment. Come on, don't you like that? He provides us everything. In other words, he provides us everything that we need. He doesn't give us everything we want, but he provides everything that we truly need. And he does that so that we can enjoy that. God doesn't, he's not a killjoy. He wants you to enjoy your life. And he gives you the things that he gives you to enjoy your life. Verse 18 says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is true life. I like the way he put that. They will take life on, they'll take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, we've been doing a series on the measure of Christian character. I started the first week talking about the fact that we are by nature selfish. Just watch children. You don't have to teach them to say mine. You don't have to teach them to say that's not fair. I mean, we are just selfish by nature. We want what we want, and we're going to get it whatever it takes. And when we don't get it, we pout, and we say, well, that's not fair. And a lot of times that carries over into adulthood. And as Christians, when we have the nature of Christ, we have to take off the old man, if you remember, and put on the new man which is in Christ Jesus. And we have to learn as that process to esteem others higher than we do ourselves. So we need to learn to be selfless, not selfish. And so that's something that we need to develop as true Christian character. So what you want to find in a, in a person's character is that they're self, selfless people. They are caring about others more than they do themselves. Then the next week I, I talked about we're not only selfish, but we're curious by nature. And I talked about the king gave orders that you're to stay in the city because outside of the city walls are dogs and sorcerers and liars and all those that do evil things. But inside the city that it's safe. And I, I told you the story about the king told his two sons, Humpty and Dumpty, to stay away from that wall because there's nothing out there but things that's going to hurt you. But of our curious nature, we're always wanting to know what is on the other side because the fallen man has that nature. He lusts for the things of this world. We read the scripture that no man can say that he is tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with sin, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. And so that's our nature a lot of times if we don't have Christ really reigning in our heart. If we don't have true Christian character, we're always wanting to know what's on the other side. And so Humpty is saying, man, listen to that. They sound like they're really having a good time. Climb up there and see what they're doing. They were told to stay away from the wall, but Humpty and Dumpty wound up sitting on the wall. They wound up falling off the wall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men pulls out all the rules and regulations and their pharisaical laws to try to put them back together again. But it doesn't change anything. Because even if you put them back together again, they're just going to wind up back up on that wall and on the other side again because their heart has not been changed. And so we need to have a change of heart. And when we have a change of heart... We don't care what's on the other side of that wall because I don't lust for those things anymore. I want to be in the presence of the king. Come on, I want to be in the city where it's safe, not because I'm trying to do all these rules and everything, because we talked about the fact that God is not holy because he does not sin. That would imply that God couldn't sin, but he chooses not to. No, God is, does not sin because he is holy. Holy. 
And so God, what he wants to do to develop true Christian character in you is to make you holy. And then I had you say that, I am holy, if you remember. I am holy. And because I am holy, I don't lust for the things of this world anymore. God has changed something in my heart that I don't lust for those things. In fact, we pray, God, I want you to help me to hate the things that you hate, to detest the things that you detest. I don't want to be lusting after them. I don't want to be drawn to them. I want to run away from those things. He said, flee those things. Flee fornication, he said. Run from it and other things. So we talked about the fact that we're curious by nature. And then last week I talked about the fact that that we need to be steadfast. You know, because we can follow Christ. We can have all of that in our heart. But if we don't really pay attention to what the enemy's trying to do and he's trying to get you to fall and and stumble we can fall back into some of our old ways we read the scripture says therefore since a promise remains of entering his rest is left to us he said let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it it was a message on apostasy and i used the apostle paul i mean um, i used the king saul as an example of someone who had a calling of God, he had an anointing of God, God anointed him and he appointed him, all right? He anointed him and he appointed him, but he rebelled and was dispelled. And that can happen to us as well, you know? And, and I went into some theological, uh, doctrinal things about what it really means to fall from grace and the fact that that is actually possible. So we want to be diligent to enter into God's rest. And I ended it by saying you need to build up yourself in your most holy faith. Praying in the Spirit. You know, so praying in the Holy Ghost and keeping yourselves in the love of God. So if we want true Christian character, we need to be diligent. Come on, you need to be diligent. And to keep your mind, the Bible says to to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. All right, and we talked about hell. It's, It's no joke. All right. And, and I'm going to tell you something about these little kids now, all right? My grandson, how old is he, eight? He's eight years old. He told his mom and dad, said, Pappy did a good job preaching this morning. His dad says he did. He said, yep. He said, well, what part did you like? He said, the part about hell and not wanting to go there. He said, I, I don't want to go there. And I was talking to Brother Brian. Brian said, I remember as a child growing up, man, that used to scare the bejeebies out of me. Amen, Brian? It's like maybe why I'm saved today was all the sermons I heard on hellfire, man. I'm the worm dying not and wiggling in the fire, and it all it scared me too. I'm like, well, the, these little ones, was list, they were listening, man. They were listening to Pastor B. And uh, he said, yeah, about people falling away from God. He said, I, I don't think I'm going to fall away from God. He said, I think I'm just going to follow Jesus. So, yeah, man, that's good stuff right there. Well, today I want to talk about the subject of contentment. Why don't we pray before we get into the Word? Father, I thank you so much, God, for what you're doing in the body of Christ, Lord. God, I know that you're always working, God. You're always working, Lord. That's our faith, our trust, and it's our faith and our trust because it's true. God, you're always working in ways that we don't see, Lord. You know, the old song says that you work in ways that we cannot see. God will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to his side with love and strength for each new day. God, you always make a way. You always make a way. Lord, if we could just know that and trust that. 
Lord, it'll give us contentment. So, Lord, I pray today, God, that the message will resonate in the hearts and minds of those who hear it, Lord, to know that, God, you are in control, Lord. You're working on our behalf, and we can trust that, Lord. So have your way today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stress. (laughs) Anybody been stressed lately? I mean, there's a lot of stress going around right now with this pandemic. You didn't get that, did you? Well, this, yeah. Uh-huh. This Chinese virus pandemic. And, and it's a lot of stress going on because of it. But there's all kinds of things that cause stress. We're, we're getting really close to that time of the year when you're going to be buying, especially our young parents, buying all these Christmas toys and putting them together. Oh, boy, isn't that fun? And you don't even have a Japanese engineer with you or a Chinese engineer with you to help you put this thing together. You know, and you just, if you're like me, you look at the picture and you start putting the thing together and you get about halfway through it and it's like, oh, that part doesn't fit there and this part doesn't fit there and I got parts left over and, and, you're, and you're just stuck. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Guys, come on. And then your wife comes up and says, well, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do this, and you need to do that. And you're like, well, how do you know? She's like, because I read the directions. Like, women. Everything's come with directions. But guys, real men don't need directions. We look at the picture, brother. Besides that, I mean, who can understand a stupid thing anyway? And especially if it's on a computer. I mean, who thought of this? Just the language that goes with computers. It's got a driver. No, a driver's a guy behind a steering wheel in a car, all right? It's got rams. No, that's sheep, you know. It doesn't, there's no, I don't see any sheep in there. It's got rams. It's got soft wear. <laughs> Brother, when I think of software, I think of fruit of the loom. (laughs) Just saying, come on. It's got a hard drive. No, I've had a hard drive. I drove all the way to Pensacola, Florida, 16 hours nonstop. That was a hard drive. But they do. They got upload, you download. It's got memory cards, scan this, flash drives, firewalls. It's got ports, and you can interface and hot sync. It's got megabytes, gigabytes, Mennonites, Hittites, Jebusites, and websites. I mean, who comes up with this stuff? And it's like, why do I have to go through all of this just to build this stupid toy? i got to read all of these destructions. Why doesn't just somebody tell me how to do this thing? I don't have time for this and you're stressed just over putting a stupid toy together and that's just one example of some of the kind of stress that we have in our life we're stressed (laughs) amen we live in a world where everything is at our fingertips it's a life of ease But this is the most stressed out generation in all of history. Isn't that amazing? I can remember sitting on the front porch with a glass of tea and a rocking chair 
with my grandparents, and nobody was stressed out. Huh? Come on. But today we're stressed out. Multitudes of people suffer from anxiety. Church, I was grown and my children almost grown before I ever even heard of a panic attack. Does anybody know what I'm talking about, the older generation? Who, who ever heard of a panic attack? I, 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 I never heard of such a thing. Anxiety? Nobody had anxiety. You, you, you just, yeah, get over it. <laughs> just get over it. I mean, it wasn't allowed. And so I had to kind of get my mind wrapped around that this is a real thing and you need to be sympathetic to it because I grew up without, just get over it. What's, what's your problem, you know? But, I mean, it's not like that, and I don't want to be insensitive, and I'm not being insensitive. But that I'm just telling you how I grew up. I'm, I'm 66 years old, so I've been around a little while, you know, over half a century. And so people are anxious. The word anxious means a feeling of worry, nervousness, unease. It's stress. It's typically about the imminent event, that means something that's really getting ready to happen, or something that is an uncertain outcome. In other words, it's things that haven't even happened yet. Things that might happen, people are stressed over. Now, I read this report in preparing for this sermon from the Mental Health Lab, because anxiety is, it is on the rise, and it has been for many, many years uh, and a few things in this report stood out to me, and I thought it would be good just to kind of go over some of this and then look at it from a biblical perspective. Uh, it said, for example, that millennials are more anxious than Gen Xers and baby boomers. Now, if you're not familiar with those terms, if you're born at the turn of the century, two, the year 2000 and on, you are a Gen Generation Y. No, I'm sorry, you're Generation Z. <laughs> Amen. Generation Z. Generation G. Uh, and then if you're born from 1980 to the year 2000, that's all, of, all three of my children. They are called millennials or Generation Y. If you're born from 1965 to 1979, you're the Gen Xers. How many Gen Xers we got in here? You're the Gen Xers, okay. If you're born from 1946 to 1964, I was born right in the middle of that, 1954, you are a baby boomer. And the reason for that is the two generations prior to my generation, they didn't have a lot of children because they went through World War II and the Great Depression, so they didn't have children. And then the, my generation, they're coming back from the war, and all of a sudden there was a boom of births, baby boomers. And uh, I'm, I'm the product of that. If you're born from 1925 to 1945, that's called the silent generation. That's the generation that survived the Great Depression in World War II, and then from the turn of the 20th century, the 1900s to 1924 was called the greatest generation. All right, so let me say it again. Millennials are more anxious than Gen Xers or baby boomers. Also, it said that women reported a greater increase in overall anxiety in all dimensions than men. Now, I thought that was important because of how it affects the next generation. You see, one reason that the next generation is what they are is because they learned it from us. Okay? And the report verified that children learn from mom and dad. So if they're anxious, the children will be anxious. They put it this way. Children are especially sensitive to their caretaker's emotional state, which means that if more adults are more anxious, the same is true with their children. 
See, they learn to be calm and in control or to be anxious and fearful from their parents. They watch how you handle things, and they learn how to handle things the way you handle them. Okay? And so millennials are more anxious than Gen Xers and baby boomers because they learned it from us. I'm the baby boomers. My children learn from me, so if they're anxious, more anxious than I, they watch me handle things without handling it the right way. And so they saw me stress over it. They stress over it. Typically, that's how it happens. Okay. This report also said that baby boomers overall, their anxiety increased more than any other age group. And I thought, well, how is that if the Gen Xers and the baby boomers are less anxious than the millennials? How is it that ours increase more? Well, you have to understand that we came from a place of contentment to anxiety. Whereas the Gen Xers and the millennials have never known contentment. You guys have known anxiety your whole life. You've never really known real contentment. And so the baby boomers had a more drastic increase from one to the other. Now, I have my own theory about how this happened, and I'm going to kind of just follow my notes to give you the thoughts as I've sat and thought through this. My parents, my mother was born in 1927, so they were the silent generation, Tonight, from 1925 to 1945, they survived the Great Depression and World War II. Now, my grandfather, the only grandfather I knew was on my, on my mother's side, my grandfather Dean. He was born in 1886, died in 1974. Uh, so he was part of the great generation. They lived off of the land or off of the very bare essentials of life. So they had to learn survival skills that baby boomers didn't have to learn. See, they learned something that we don't know, how to survive off of what you have and be happy with it. Be content with that because that's all you had. There's no point in whining about it. It's not going to change anything, and they knew that. So they just did what you have to do to get what you needed to get. All right, and so they learned that. We, the baby boomers, saw a huge upswing in living comfortably, and there was a push to live the American dream. And so everybody saw all of this possibility of what they could have and what they could do and what they could learn and where they could go. And so everybody was pushing to do that. Now, remember, children are especially sensitive to their caretaker's emotional state which means that if the adults are more anxious, the same thing will be true with their children. Likewise, if their parents are content, children are likely to learn contentment from watching their parents handle things in a, in a, in a strong way. My parents made sure that I learned what they did. I basically am and have been a fairly contented person. I mean, I raised three children in a house that measures 20 feet wide and 40 feet long. And we were happy. Weren't we, babe? And it was falling down when I bought it. Literally. First time I walked in, somebody lived in. The second time I walked in and I owned it and I stomped the kitchen floor. My foot went through the kitchen floor. I'm like, this doesn't look good. 
I had to jack the whole house up and replace all the undercarriage and everything with no money. That was fun. Crawling under the house, digging new piers with buckets of cement and pouring new... Oh, I could tell you stories, brother, about Green Acres is the place to be. Fun living is the life for me. <laughs> Land spreading out so far and wide. Keep Manhattan, just give me that countryside. Some of you are looking at me like, what is he talking about? How many of you know Green Acres? Uh, Oliver. The younger generation is like, he's lost his mind. I knew it was going to happen. There's... See, my grandparents and my parents were content, and they taught us the same thing. See, I heard over and over again, you're big enough, your wants don't hurt you. I want this and I want that. And like, that's fine. You're big enough, your wants don't hurt you. In other words, when you're a baby, your wants will hurt you. We'll take care of you. We'll give you what you need. But now you're big enough, your wants don't hurt you anymore. Shut your mouth and go on. Go play. You know. Well, so-and-so's got one. Well, good for so-and-so. You're not getting one because you don't need one. Amen. <laughs> Come on. That's how I grew up. It's like you just did what you do and you make do because you're not going to get one. Whining's not going to get you anything but a spanking in my house. All right? So we didn't, you just didn't buy them, give them everything. Parents, let me tell you something. You're not doing your kids' favor by just giving them everything they whine and want for. In fact, you're doing them harm. That's a part of this problem that we're having. I'm going to be addressing here in a minute. It's called the Entitlement Society. Amen? I brought something as an object lesson just to kind of tell you what I'm, show you what I'm talking about this morning. My grandfather literally lived off of the land in every possible way. He was an excellent craftsman. He built, helped build Fort Pickett. He built churches. He built houses. He built caskets. He built furniture. And when he didn't have anything else to do, when he first started out, he built chairs. And the way he would build chairs, this is one of the chairs that my grandfather built. They didn't, he did most of it by hand to start with. And then later on, he, he did get a, a shop and he had a one uh, engine that pulled everything. It was a steam engine. I don't know if you've ever been to the steam show and you see the old great big wheel in this thing and it'll turn and go. And a big pull and it pulled an overhead thing and it ran the different things. He did have a lathe that he would turn these legs with these spindles here. The rest of this was all made, a lot of it was made by hand. He would turn these and put them in a jig to bend it, and then he would cut this off with a draw knife. This is all done by hand here. He would take this, this matting in the bottom of it. That's, this has been replaced, but what he would use was white oak, and he would strip it all with a draw knife by hand and make the, the lattice go in the bottom and weave that in the bottom, and he would sell these for a dollar a piece. He would get for those. And the way he would do that is he, would, he was lived in Pisgah, North Carolina at the time, up in the mountain, the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina. And he would go up on the mountain and cut the trees down and carry them down the mountain on his back and do all this work by hand. They literally lived off of the land. My mom, she, she was in the sixth grade, and she was older than all the other children because she had to stay home and help my grandmother do the wash. She, she didn't get to go to school. And they would hoe corn, and they, he raised chickens for people. He raised chickens and sold eggs. It was currency. He would take eggs and go to the store and trade that for flour and cornmeal and things like that. 
And my mom said that if he ever caught me and my little brother, her, her, her brother's name was Lee, my Uncle Lee, said we would have got a whipping because they would go collect the eggs, and if the hen stepped on an egg and the toenail punched a hole in it, they got to keep that egg. And Grandma would cook it and make cornbread or make a cake or something and said there was a nail in the hen house, and they would punch a hole in an egg once in a while because it looked just exactly like the toenail of a hen, and they'd get to keep that egg. So it said if, if Daddy would have caught us, he would have whipped us big time <laughs> for that. But, I mean, they had nothing. My mom read the magazines and newspapers on the wall of their house because Grandma would make paste out of flour and water and take newspaper and uh, magazines and stuff and paste it on the wall of a board-sided house to keep the wind out. And she, one time there was something wiggling up under the paper and she took a hairpin and stuck through it, and it was a bat had gotten through the crack and was crawling around up under the paper. She stuck a hairpin through that. She went out in the yard one time, and the hens were digging up her garden. And so she sat down. Her name was Molly Dean, and she was absolutely, am I right, Gigi, the most content woman I believe that has ever lived. She never saw the ocean. My, one of my regrets is I didn't take my grandmother. Yeah. But she didn't care. She really didn't care. She gave Jeannie some stuff. It was a plant that grows all over the ground. And we, named, we didn't even know what it was called. We called it molly moss because it would grow anywhere. And Jeannie said, this stuff is, is content just like grandma was, you know. And uh, she saw those chickens digging up the garden. And so she sat down and she always crocheted and knitted. And, and I don't know if this is Christian or not, but she chewed snuff her whole life. And she'd sit there and rock, and she had a little tin can with paper stuck in it. And she'd rock, and every once in a while you'd see her take that tin can, and she'd spit her snuff in it and wipe it with a napkin and set it all down, and she'd go back to crocheting. Well, she crocheted little booties for all the chickens. Every one of them. Grandpa came home and said the chickens were out there, and they were trying to scratch. She couldn't scratch because she put booties on their feet. One time she grinded up a bunch of old hot peppers and mixed it in with the feed and fed it to the chickens. And Grandpa came in and said, what in the world is wrong with those chickens out there? She said, well, so I didn't think it would hurt them. Said, but I ground up that hot peppers and gave it to them. He said, well, I wonder what was wrong with them. Says, they was running around saying, fire, fire. <laughs> but they were happy, church. They had nothing, nothing. But they were happy. They were content. His sister, my, my mother's great aunt, Aunt Emmy, they were part Cherokee. Her grandmother was a Cherokee Indian woman named Amayaha. Her, her father, my grand, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, Razor Dean was half Cherokee. And so they grew up on the edge of the Cherokee Indian Reservation there in Maggie Valley, North Carolina, Jackson County. And Aunt Emmy, we would go see them, and they lived in the same little house. This house is so tiny I mean, it was, even I was a kid, and it was tiny. And one of our chores would be to go down to the spring and get a bucket of water because they didn't have water in the house. My grandparents didn't have water, running water in the house for many years. Younger brother took the spring and put a pump in the spring and ran running water to the house and put a bathroom in the house for my grandmother. And my grandfather would not use it. He said, that's the nastiest thing I ever heard tell of, people doing that in the house. You don't do that in the house. You go out on the... Because in his mind, that you just didn't do that in your house. 
You understand, these are the type of people that I grew up around. He could grow anything. He had an apple tree that had three different kinds of apples growing on it. Because he would take a, one, a bud out of another apple tree and, and splice it into this apple tree. And it had red delicious, golden delicious, and wine sap growing out of the same tree. And he grew a beautiful garden. The soil at the foot of Pisgah Mountain is just jet black soil. It is the richest soil I've ever seen. He grew some of the prettiest strawberries. And I just go on and on about that. He had huckleberries and rhubarb. Anybody had rhubarb pie? You know what rhubarb pie is? And so I grew up around that, you know. And my mom and dad were basically the same way. My mom grew up that way, and she raised us that way. My Aunt Emmy, I was going to tell you about her. We, they had a milk cow. Listen, if they didn't raise it, you didn't have it. They lived off the land or meager existence, and they learned to survive, and they learned to be content with that. And the Bible tells us if you have food and you have clothing, therewith be content. That is foreign to the thinking of today. But you look at people that are refugees that's been run out of their country. And they will tell you, if they've got a warm place to lay down at night that's dry and clean, that represents raiment, and they've had something to eat that day, they're blessed. Church, we are so blessed. God, we're so blessed. Why are we so stressed? You know, I wonder what God thinks about that. We're so stressed out when we are so incredibly blessed. And, and I've, many times, I've got, when I would get stressed about something, I'm like, God, what am, I, what am I doing? Lord, I am sorry. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. And just to be thankful. So I learned contentment from them. I learned what it was like to see them have to get water out of the spring. They, they never had a TV in their house. For years, my grandmother cooked on a wood stove. And I, I always thought her bread was so much better on that wood stove than that electric one. Maybe it was just me, but they saved. She finally got her an electric stove. And the food wasn't nearly as good off that electric stove. When we went there, there was always, every meal I ever remember eating there was cathead biscuits. Anybody know what a cathead biscuit is? It's a big old biscuit the size of a cat's head. That's why they call them cathead biscuits. They always had biscuits on the table, always. And strip cane molasses and, and soup beans. That's what we ate every meal at my grandparents'. And sometimes they would be a little piece of meat, maybe some fat back or bacon. That was it. Every meal. And that's what they had. My grandfather had no teeth. He kept them in a glass up on the jar, sitting up on the way. He bought them, but he never would wear them. Wore bibbed overhauls all the time in a white shirt. He put a clean white shirt on for Sunday to go to church. That was, that was dressed up. He put a clean shirt on. Put his bibbed overhauls on. And they would take, always had coffee in a saucer. Coffee cup with a saucer. Some of you are looking back, it's like, yep, I remember that. Because you grew up the same way. Am I right, Nancy? And they would take that biscuit and break it in half, put it in that saucer and pour coffee over it. And they sat there and eat it with a fork. My mom did the same thing. Well, she had teeth, but she still did the same thing. Well, he did, Grandpa did that because he didn't have any teeth. He couldn't chew it up. <laughs> Some people say, golly. 
I'm just telling you, it was like that. So I learned contentment. I saw others of my generation, though, that they didn't learn those lessons. They pushed and pushed and pushed to have more and more and more and had to have it right now. And I watched that happen. And how did they get it? On credit. On credit. Now, now Brother Timmy uh, Burkett, he teaches a class here called Financial Peace University. And and in that, it's Dave Ramsey's lesson. In that, they teach you, you don't spend money you don't have. Cut your credit cards up. If you don't have money, don't, don't buy it. If you can't afford to buy it, don't buy it. Tell yourself no. You don't need it. You want it, but you don't need it. You don't really need it. And if you will learn to do that, you will have peace, financial peace, if you just buy the things that you actually need and the things that you can afford. But when we buy everything on credit, our children learn the same behavior. The millennials learned that behavior from the baby boomers. The baby boomers, all of a sudden, they didn't live like the, the, the silent generation. They didn't live like the greatest generation because we're in a prosperity boom and all of a sudden you see people prospering over here and those people and the Joneses have got this and the Joneses have got that. And I, there was a song that said, the Joneses got a new car just this very week. Hooray for the Joneses. Don't you feel so bad because your car is old? Because your car will get you where you want to go. Ow! Don't let the Joneses, don't let the Joneses get you down. Who cares what the Joneses has got? Thank God they're blessed. But I don't have to have that if I can't afford that. But what happened with the baby boomers is they're prospering, they're prospering. And so I have the right to have that too. But you can't afford it. So they come up with this great idea of credit cards. (laughs) Yeah, great for the bank, but bad for you. Amen? Come on. And so I, I watched this trend happen, and next thing you know is the, the people are stressed out because they're in their head, overhead in debt, and they can't afford this. And the millennials learn from their parents the same thing. So many today, they have that outside appearance of success, but inside, they're a wreck. They're having panic attacks, and they're stressed out. It's like a balloon. It looks bigger and bigger and more pronounced on the outside. All the things that they've had, all the things that they've done, all the things that they've learned, they've achieved. But on the inside, it's just a big empty void. And it's getting ready to explode. The things that our grandparents worked and and saved for, the younger generation wants it right now. When my grandmother bought that electric stove, they paid cash money for it. But it took years and years and years and years of saving pennies to have enough money to go buy grandma's electric stove. Because I remember them talking about it. And she's like, yeah, we saved a lot. I heard my grandmother say, yeah, we saved. She always walked kind of hunched over like that, wore the little booties, stockings all the way up to here. Hair in a bun back here. Huh? 
She said, yeah, we saved pennies for many years to buy that stove. It's amazing what children remember, isn't it? But all of this balloon thing, this got to have it right now, credit card, began an attitude of entitlement. We saw the prosperity of others. We got to have it right now. <laughs> Just watch the commercials. 1 800 877. What is it? 1 877 Cash Now. Huh? What is it? JC, JG Wentworth. One, how many of you seen the commercial? 877 Cash Now. It's my money and I need it now. The mentality of this generation. That summed up the attitude of most Americans today. And when we can't have it right now, anxiety sets in. Church, even when we get it, it's not paid for. And anxiety sets in. It's a lose lose when you're not content with what you have. You're anxious because you don't have it. When you get it, you can't pay for it. You're anxious because you're in debt. When really you don't even need it. Godliness with contentment is such a great gain, isn't it? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, at least that's my theory. I told you I had my own theory on why the millennials are more anxious than the Gen Xers and the baby boomers. The article went on to say that there are lasting problems caused by this disorder. It says, if it lasts, anxiety, like fear, can bring long-lasting psychological changes such as prolonged muscle tension, chronic high blood pressure, and sleep disorder. Worrying can become so overwhelming that a person does not focus on other important areas of life such as work, school, or relationships. An especially anxious person may become excessively sensitive to minor concerns, which may be manifested by overreacting or avoiding people or situations that are not dangerous. Have you ever seen people? I mean, the slightest little thing. I heard this little saying one time, big things upset big people. Little things upset little people. People that get upset over little things. We saw that on our little cartoon thing, right? People that get upset over little things. It's because of the anxiety and the anxiousness and the stress that's in their life. It makes them overreact over things that really shouldn't matter. They're stressed out and they're letting it affect every area of their life. Or they just avoid people. People can get wigged out over some of the smallest things, can't they? Can't we? Come on, let's, let's look in the mirror for a minute. Because sometimes this applies to us. Get wigged out over some of the smallest things. Anxiety is a low-grade version of fear response. Severe instances of fear, such as an actual direct threat of pain, injury, or death, can cause very real physical reactions, including a release of stress hormones into the bloodstream, a change of heart rate and blood pressure as the body prepares to act rapidly. So when something is really, really actually dangerous, these hormones, your, the hormones in your body are really crazy. I've done some study on that. It's really amazing what your brain can do and how it affects your body. 
So it releases these hormones. Your blood pressure goes up. Your adrenaline gland kicks in. All of that because of a real threat. And it's preparing your body to. That's how people lift cars off of someone. Because of this reaction to a real life crisis. But these symptoms are normal responses to an actual direct threat. But worrying is not an actual threat. Worrying is about something that is just perceived. It hasn't even actually happened. It's just something that might happen or you're afraid that it will happen or you're thinking that it's going to happen. And so it triggers some of the same responses. You're tense. Muscles are tense. You come in. You got How many of you ever had pain in the back of your neck after a long day? And you're like, man, I just, and you've, been, you've been tense like this all day. You've been stressed out all day. And, uh, and it's sometimes it's things that you shouldn't be stressed over. And sometimes it is things that's really stressful. So this causes anxiety. It makes some people excessively sensitive to minor concerns. They overreact or avoid people. That's the flight or fight mode. Because when something is actually a real threat, you're either you're ready to fight, you're ready to go into action, or you turn and run. You f- run away from it. So you overact or you just avoid it altogether. Some of that's attached to your personality. I won't get into all of that. But The article went on to s- suggest that there are ways to reduce anxiety. <clears throat> Although regular exercise, relaxation, healthy eating, and time with friends and family are known to reduce anxiety. See, one reason that our grandparents had less anxiety is because they found time to sit on the porch on Saturday or on Sunday evening with a glass of tea and just sit there and relax and talk. Instead of running to a ball game, running to this and going to that and run, 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 run. No, Sunday evening, one reason that I, when we first planted the church here, the, the traditional assembly of God form of worship was you and, and Baptist that I grew up in, you have a Sunday morning service, a Sunday night service, and a Wednesday night service. And they actually pressured me to have a Sunday night service. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Because I, I had seen the trend. I mean, I was the kid every Sunday night without fail. We're watching TV, and the wonderful world of Disney was coming on. And the little fairy would come out with a little wand and go, ping, and the Peacock, tell, anybody know what I'm talking about? We knew it was time to turn the TV off because it was time to go to church. And I never got to see Walt Disney. I had to go to church, you know. And when we got there, there was a handful. The church is full on Sunday morning, a handful of people there Sunday night, the same faithful group of people, because if the church door was open, they were going to be there. Did they really want to be there? Not necessarily, but if the church is open, they're faithful, they're going to be there, all right? And I remember my brother saying, I'll be glad when I grow up and I can be a deacon. And my dad was so proud. That's good, son. Why? He said, because they don't have to go to church on Sunday night. (laughs) Children pay attention to a lot of stuff. Come on. But my philosophy was Sunday's a day of rest, all right? It's also a day of worship. We, we give time to God. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So when, when we come together, we come together in obedience to his scripture. 
but it's also a time for you to rest. My intention is for you to take Sunday evening instead of having something else on your schedule, coming to church Sunday night. I want you to spend time with your family. Get a glass of iced tea and go sit on the back porch in a rocking chair and visit. Why? Because it's proven that it reduces stress. Spending time with family, relaxation, those things actually do reduce stress and anxiety. These fixes may not be sufficient, though, the article said. And I said, for your information, these remedies will help, but they are not sufficient. Because the Bible says, Philippians chapter 4, look at it with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Say that with me. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Say thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart, mind through Christ Jesus. So you can do all those things. You can rest. You can relax. You can sip tea on the porch and visit with friends. But friends, you need God in your life. If you're going to have real peace and real joy and real contentment, you need God in your life. And, it, and as I started pondering on that, God dropped this in my spirit. I'm going to run through this, and then I'm going to let you get out of here. Contentment is like an atom. This is what the Lord dropped in my spirit. Contentment is like the atom. How many of you know what the atom is? The atom, it has a nucleus, which is kind of the, holds it all together. It has the proton, the neutrons, and the electron field. All right? Contentment is like that. Our goal is to be content. But contentment doesn't work just by itself. You can't just be content without faith, without patience and without peace. They are the proton, the neutron, the electron field of contentment. And I'm like, that is so cool, God. And it is so true because one produces the other and you can't have either without the other. Just like the atom, it doesn't exist. Take the proton out, it doesn't exist. You take the neutron out, it doesn't exist. Electron field doesn't exist. You don't have a nucleus. You have to have them all for it to work. To have contentment, you have to have faith. God is at hand. How can I ever have peace if I didn't believe that God has got my back? I can never have peace. I can never have contentment without faith in God that he's got my back. The Lord is at hand. I will be anxious for nothing. That's my faith. Why? Because I know that he will keep my heart. He will keep my mind. Listen, if I'm giving thanks to God when I've got nothing that's because I've got faith in something that's going to take care of me. Why could our grandparents and my parents have such contentment? In my case is because they knew that there was a God that was going to take care of them. I mean, it, it, you should have looked at the side. I went and seen the side of the mountain where my mom grew up, and she hoed corn when she was old, just big enough to hold a hoe in her hand because they had to have that corn crop. And I could go on. It was, it was a really hard upbringing. But they believed that God's going to take care of us. And he did. He gave them everything that they needed. How can you go through so much 
how can you go through some of the most stressful times of your life and be content in the midst of it? It's because of your faith. Psalms 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. But the righteous cry out to the Lord, and he hears them and delivers them out of their trouble. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Come on, this is, nobody lives a trouble-free life. Nobody lives a trouble-free life. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. What is that? Faith in my God. If you're ever going to have contentment, it has to begin with faith that my God's got my back. He's there for me. Romans 28, 28 says, for I know, I know. Everybody say, I know. I know that all things work together for good to those uh, who are in Christ Jesus. For those that are, uh, I can't even quote him. For those, uh, to them that are, uh, love God, there you go. To them that are called according to his purpose. Philippians 1, 6 says, be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Church, it begins with our faith. God's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of me. Some of the most content people I have ever known are some of the poorest people that I've ever known. They had nothing, but they were content. I used to sing a song in church. It says, I'm a child of the king, a child of the king. And it says, uh, how was it? Oh, it was a recitation that went with it. So the man was out plowing in the field, and, and he, he didn't have anything, and the plow was all wrapped together, and he was plowing behind this old mule. The mule was about half starved, and a rich man came down the road, and he saw him, and he stopped. And, and I would give this recitation as I would sing the song and said, why are you singing? You have nothing. He said, my father is rich in houses and land. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hand. Of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold, his coffers are full, he has riches untold. And I'm a child of the king, child of the king, with Jesus my Savior, I'm a child of the king. He said, yeah, but you have nothing. Look at that old house over there. It's falling down. It's a shack. You have to pull the door shut. You don't even have a doorknob, just a string to wrap around. He said, my, a tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a mansion for me over there. Though exile from home, yet still I can sing, oh, glory to God, I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of the king, a child of the king. His royal blood now flows through my veins. Amen. Say, so, uh, we've got we've to know that, church, to have peace. God is at hand. And then that process is going to produce patience. Patience, the, elect, the, the, the neutron and the protron. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting, come on, say it, nothing. Wanting nothing. What does patience teach you? I don't have to want for anything. Why? Because I know that God's got me. And I know that whatever I need, he's going to provide for me. 
He shall provide all of my needs according to his riches in glory through Christ Jesus. That's a promise from God. He doesn't provide all my wants, but he provides all that I need. So the trying of my faith, it works patience. And when that patience has had its full work, it makes me perfect and complete, wanting for nothing. That's, brother, that is the very definition of contentment. Does that, does that mean we, do, we don't want things? Well, of course I want things. And if I can save and, and I can go buy them with cash, you have every right to have them. God doesn't want you to be deprived of things that you want. He's not a killjoy. He gives you those things to enjoy. But listen, if you can't have them, can you still be content? That's the true measure of Christian character. It's when I can't have all the things that I want, and I can't keep up with the Joneses, and everybody's being blessed, and I'm having to live in a 20-by-40-foot house. Can I still be content? I can be totally content. Why? Because my faith is in God. He's going to give me everything I need, and I've got it. We have never, ever, ever in 46 years went to bed hungry, have we, Mom? Never. We've slept in a warm house, dry, safe, healthy, Come on, church. We've got so much to be thankful for. So much to be thankful for. So patience perfected, perfected makes one content with whatever he has, wanting nothing. The greatest example of that, and I'm not going to go into it, is Joseph. I mean, look at Joseph. My goodness. Thrown in a pit, taken out of that, accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into a prison, finally makes his way into the castle. But Joseph was content in the pit. He was content in the prison. He was content when the butler betrayed him and didn't and forgot about him. He was content. To read the story of Joseph. He was content. And his life was a wreck. But he was always content. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So faith and patience will produce peace. I just saw in my mind the nucleus, the proton, the neutron, and I just saw peace just swirling all around because we're surrounded with peace. Church, if you can get the faith down, if you can get the patience down, you'll have peace that passes understanding. It will just surround you. It'll just overtake you. You just have just the peace of God. Brother, there's nothing that I would give in exchange for peace. Huh? And those who have not had it probably understand that more than those of us who do have it. Because to be without peace is a life of turmoil and torment. Philippians 4 6, and I'm on floor 4, I'm sorry, I'm going to close with this. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Remember who he's read that. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. That tells me it'll guard your heart, the things that are real. It'll guard your mind, the things that are perceived. Amen? Praise the Lord. Are you content this morning? Listen, God has got your back. He cares for you. The Lord loves you, 
And, as, and I, I believe this, as long as we are faithful and obedient to him, we started out, what do we teach our children? Obedience brings, say it with me. I need to have a children's class right here. Obedience brings blessing. Say it with me. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings judgment <laughs> and pain. Is that what you teach them? It brings judgment and pain. But I believe that if you're obedient and you follow God and, and try to do his will. You see, God looks at the intent of your heart. Do I always do his will? No, I, I don't always do his will. But it's not because I'm not trying to do his will. Sometimes it's because I'm just, Lord, I, my intention is to do your will. Because it's just kind of like an unspoken, continuous prayer, in, at least in my life. Let the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O oh God. Let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O oh God. And I believe that if, when we are, when the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart is acceptable in his sight, God's going to bless you. And when the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart are not acceptable in sight, it's because I'm slipping. It's not because I don't intend for them to be. Amen? And so I, I, I'm talking about the way I do this because I, I hope that's helping you. Because if Pastor B can blunder this thing, and I do, come on, maybe more than some of you, God help me, you can do it too. Amen? Praise the Lord. I asked the worship team to come back up this morning. We're going to sing when... Peace like a river attendeth my soul. When sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my state, he has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I don't think there's ever been a song written that, that talks about true Christian character of contentment better than that one. And that, what was that guy's name, Horatio, that wrote that? And he actually, I don't know if you know the story, but he was a business. You, you guys can stand to your feet if you would, please. He was a businessman in Chicago. And he, his, he was actually getting ready to go to England to help. I believe it was John Wesley. They were going to visit John Wesley. And the his, this great Chicago fire burnt down his business. He lost everything. He lost everything. And so he was told his wife, said, we plan to go to England to help Brother Wesley. Let's continue to go, but I'm going to send you guys ahead, and I'm going to finish closing up the business affairs here, and then I will follow you. Well, as the ship was going to England, it collided with a commercial ship, and the ship sank, and the only one that survived was his wife, all three of his children. They had already lost two children, and all of three of his children drowned the ocean and so he got a, a a message from his wife said I am alive and well but all the children have died and so he gets on a ship and he's on his way to England to join his wife in England and when they got to the area where the ship went down the captain came down and said Mr. Ratio the, we're in the approximate area where your family went down and I forget the depth it was like miles deep there and he stood on the bow of the ship looking over the waves of the ocean. And the words of this song came to his mind. And he wrote down, when peace like a river 
attendeth my soul. Or when sorrows like the sea billows roll, whatever my state, he has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Church, you, you can't have that kind. And, and you're facing something like this man was facing. You have to have that Christian character of contentment to be able to write something like that. This song has been around for, I don't know, a couple hundred years now. And it speaks of that kind of attitude. So let's leave this morning with the words of this song really echoing in our mind. Because I want us to be content. Father, I pray that this message, Lord, I feel like I haven't done it justice. But God, I believe today, Lord, that you want to develop that contentment in the hearts and minds of every person that has heard this message. So Lord, whatever they're facing, God. May you help them, God, to, to, to recognize, Lord, if they will just trust you, Lord, if they will just learn to be patient, God. Father, if they will just put their, their confidence in you, Lord, and they will know your peace, Lord, then they will enjoy that contentment, Lord. May we know that today, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Lead us as we sing.
say that again. If you're here this morning and it's not well with your soul, all you need to do is say, God, here am I. I give my life to you. Take me and use me, Lord. It's really just that simple. I commit my life to you, Lord. I want to serve you all the days of my life. Take me, Lord, and use me. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time together, Lord. Father, I pray for those that may be struggling today, Lord. And while this message was absolutely true, God, it may be hard, Lord, for them to digest it because there's so much going on in their life that is so difficult and so painful, Lord. And we're not insensitive to that, God. There is anxiety in their life. There is panic attacks, God. There's stress in their life. But God, I pray that you supernaturally, Lord, just give them a visitation of your goodness, God. Show them, God. Tell them, Lord, just how much you love them and how much you can do to help them if they will just put their faith in you, God. If they will just learn, Lord, to endure the trials, Lord, and be faithful to you. God, they will know that peace, Lord, and they will have that contentment, God that is so wonderful, Lord, that keeps us, Lord. Father, I pray for everyone else, Lord, that is enjoying that contentment, Lord, that we remember last week's message, Lord, that we are diligent, God. We're diligent, Lord, to maintain our Christian witness, Lord, and to serve you, Lord, to be faithful to you, to work out our salvation, Lord, with fear and trembling, to be faithful to you, God, every day, Lord. God, give us strength, Lord. I pray for every single person, Lord to experience the power and the baptism of the Spirit, Lord, to endue them with that power, Lord, to be able to be a witness unto you. Baptize them in the Holy Ghost, God. Baptize them in the Spirit, Lord. 
and do them with power, I pray in Jesus' name. Now, Lord, I pray for the body of Christ as we leave this place, Lord, that you would watch over us, Lord. Keep us safe, Lord. We want to remember the upcoming election. God, we pray that righteousness will rule in our nation. God, we pray for righteous men and righteous women to get into positions of power, Lord, to rule our nation, Lord. God, we pray for Amy Barrett, Lord, in her confirmation. She is a godly woman, Lord, who stands on righteous principles, Lord. Appoint her, God, to the Supreme Court, I pray in Jesus' name, Lord. Make it happen, God. Make it happen, Lord. Father, you said, Lord that no weapon that's formed against us and every tongue that rises against us, we are to condemn it, Lord. And we condemn those, Lord, who speak out against this righteous woman, Lord. Make it happen, God, I pray in Jesus' name, Lord. Put righteous people in positions of power, I pray in Jesus' name, Lord. Now, Father, keep your, your, your people, Lord. Keep us safe, Lord, from the enemy, and Lord, and the attacks of the enemies, Lord that no weapon will form against us that, that can prosper, Lord. God, I pray a blessing over every single house that is represented here today, Lord. God, may it be a place of refuge, Lord, an escape from the world, Lord, a place where the Holy Spirit is welcome. Strengthen the family today, God. Husbands, Lord, help them to rise up and be the spiritual priest, the high priest in their home, God, the spiritual leader, Lord. God, the leader that says, choose this day whom you will serve. Serve either the, the, the ones that your family served on the other side of the flood or serve the God of the Amorites in whose land we now dwell. But God, let the men, Lord, of your house rise up and say, as for me and for my house, we are going to serve the Lord God. Strengthen the fathers, Lord, to be spiritual leaders in their home, God. And, Lord, we pray then that their wives will come beside them, Lord, to be the helpmate that you intended for them to be. They will walk together, Lord, as co-partners, Father, to live righteous and godly. Lord, I pray that the children, Lord, will be respectful to their parents and honor their mother and father, which is the first commandment with promise, that their days will be long on the earth. And, Lord, that they will love each other, Lord. God, they need to love. Brothers and sisters need to love each other. For if you say you love God who you cannot see and you can't love your own brother who you do see, the Bible says you're a liar and the truth's not in you. So, Lord, help the children to love each other. Then, Father, I pray a special prayer for those who are living single, Lord. They're seeking their mate, Father. That special person's there for them somewhere. God, I pray that each woman will find her husband. God, each husband will find his wife. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you, church. Thank you.